joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only podcast where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is an incredibly timely one as we talk to Reuters sports news and football correspondent Simon Evans, who has spent much of the past week covering the launch of the Super League. Could have been one of the most radical changes in, in, in the world's most popular sport, but it only lasted 48 hours. As quickly as the league announced, the denouncements were even faster and certainly more furious. There weren't many backers of this idea at all outside of the people who came up with it. The focus of the next chapter of this story is what fallout there may be. Yeah, the, no, the damage is huge. I mean, I think their political positions inside uh, UEFA and inside European football, they were very strong. They influenced how many teams, the structure and the financial distribution model for UEFA, the big clubs had a huge sway over that because for many years they'd used the threat of a breakaway as leverage. That leverage is gone now. Simon's university studies of government and political science have come in handy as he has covered this intrigue. I was talking to somebody who is a political consultant in the UK who was watching this story and saying, this is even more brutal than real politics because, <laughs> because you don't actually have voters. You don't actually have the public. So politicians will at least temper their ambition and their desires and, and everything else by the knowledge that they have to go to the voters every four years or so. These guys don't have to do that. It's just all about money and power. His time with Reuters has included tenures in Milan and Miami, covering a myriad of sports, some of which were pretty new to him. In Miami, obviously, there's great high school football. I would go and watch high school games, not reporting them for Reuters, obviously, but just to watch it and learn it and talk to people. I just have to immerse myself in it. Being adaptable has been very important to his success in one of the most unique jobs in sports media. Foreign correspondent for sport is a pretty small world. I mean, there's foreign correspondents and there's sports correspondents. There's not many are, are doing both. And it's a pretty unique skill set. You've got to be able to um, almost be parachuted into situations and get up to speed really, really fast. Real quick, before we get started, take a moment, please leave a rating and review wherever you are listening and make sure to follow Credentials Only on social media. Head over to credentialsonly.com where not only can you sign up for our mailing list, but you can find show notes that include links to many of the stories Simon has written on the Super League. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Simon Evans. Simon, thanks so much for joining me. Typically, Credentials Only isn't going to be covering the news of the day. However, I welcome the opportunity to have you here on this podcast because there is so much news that you've been at the forefront covering. Explain, please, what in the world is the European Super League? Well, the European Super League doesn't actually exist. That's the first thing to say about it. Um, it was an attempt last week by the 12 biggest soccer clubs in Europe from Spain, Italy, and England to break away from the established structure that's set up by uh, UEFA, who run the Champions League and, and other European club competitions, to break away from that and set up their own show, run by them with a company entirely owned by them, um, with automatic places for those teams for the next 23 years, which is what a lot of the controversy was about because currently European club competitions, you qualify for it every year through your domestic league. You have to finish, for example, in the Premier League in the top four, and then you get into the Champions League. With the breakaway, they wouldn't have to qualify. They'd just be in every year. So it was a big, uh, a big, huge, huge story. I mean, it could have been one of the most radical changes in, in, in the world's most popular sport, um, but it 
only lasted 48 hours. Um, there was a huge backlash against it that included um, political opposition, which was crucial, uh, governments in, in Europe and in the UK uh, coming out against this, and, and the English teams backed out of it. There's a, a considerable amount to unpack with this, and I think we're probably only going to scratch the surface of it. But I think the, the first thing to cover, and I feel I have a predominantly American audience here for this podcast, that idea of promotion and, and you know you qualify for that type of championship, that's prevalent in European soccer. But promotion and relegation is not something we see here in the U.S. Can you explain that to someone who might not be familiar? So uh, you hear this phrase, the pyramid, used in soccer a lot these days. And the pyramid is basically to describe how in soccer you can start off with a team playing in a local amateur rec league, if you like. And if you're good and you win that league, you can go up to a higher quality league. So it's kind of like if you imagine the old minor leagues of baseball, if you can imagine having a minor league team that did really well, and they went up into the major leagues because they'd earned it. And the weakest teams in the major league don't just sit there having losing records every year. They go down to the minors. So that's kind of how all European soccer and all soccer around the world, apart from in uh, North America, uh, works. Um, where we, you know, you have promotion, you go up. You have relegation, you go down. And so you have had these amazing stories of teams who start in the fourth division in England and went all the way up to the top. And, and in Europe, there's no relegation because the tournament changes every year. It's a, it's, a, it's a structure where you qualify for it each year. And if you don't qualify the next year, even if you're the best team in the Champions League in 2020, if you don't qualify for your domestic competition, you're not in it. So part of the rub is right now the top four teams in Premier League, as you said, qualify for Champions League these teams were securing their spots. So an example is Arsenal, who this year isn't going to sniff that top four. They were going to have a position in that Super League just because they were in at the outset. And, and that's really where the fan uproar began, correct? Yeah, because that's seen as, uh, you know, quite honestly, you haven't earned it. You know, you're, you're entering a competition. You're closing the door behind yourself. You haven't earned it. Um, that was a direct attack made by, by the fans of, of one of the clubs. Leeds United played Liverpool in the middle of all this furore on Monday. And they wore T-shirts to warm up in with Champions League earn it on the front of it. And the Liverpool coach, Jurgen Klopp, hated that because, of course, they won it two years ago and they thoroughly deserved to win it and did earn it. But what it's saying is, like, well, you, you can't shut that off for 23 years. So it goes... The reason why there was such a huge backlash against it was it goes right to the core of, of what people consider is sporting competition. It's not business. Business is secondary. Uh, people make money out of the game. A lot of people make a lot of money out of the game, but you have to earn it. And I think what was interesting to watch was you could understand where the, the teams from the Premier League, for example, who were not invited could have a problem with it. But even the teams who were doing this, Arsenal, a good example, their fans were against it. This seems like it was universally hated by everyone except for the owners who were going off and trying to do it. Pretty much so, yeah. I mean, um, they, I think they were embarrassed by it, really, that their clubs had, had taken that position because it did feel like they were jumping the queue every year and, and closing up the bridge behind themselves. Um, and, you know... It, 
fans just found it. It's just an anathema. It's just a totally different culture. I mean, we haven't we haven't got a franchise system. People throw the word around a little bit now and then and say things. The Premier League is a great product, and they use this kind of business language, but it strictly speaking is not a franchise system. Um, we would we never have a situation of franchises moving locations as Arsenal owner Stan Kroenke did when he took the Rams from St. Louis to, to LA. Uh, that has never happened in, in, in English football or in European sport. Um, they're not franchises, they're clubs, and they were born in these communities over 100 years ago. So it, it's deep. It goes very deep. And they earn their chance to play up, like we talked about, as opposed to MLS, where I think right now it's around $200 million to get that franchise to have the opportunity to play in that league. You can't grow from the USL to get into it. So that does set it apart probably from what we're used to in the U.S. And then you do see on this same weekend a team like Watford qualifying for the premiership and huge celebrations because they've now been promoted. They're going to get to go up. And I feel like it adds to the intrigue of the entire season over there of teams battling to stay up or battling to get up. And it's a, even within the champions league of trying to get into the top four, there's a lot more competition than just someone trying to be number one. Does that add to the intrigue of every weekend in the sport? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, um, you know, the bottom three in the premier league go out. So if you're in the bottom eight, going into the last few weeks of the season, you're nervous. You're fighting for your survival, as they call it in the Premier League. Uh, the top team obviously wins the title. They're the champions. And then behind that, you have uh, the, the fight for the top four to get into the Champions League and all the exposure that gives you and all the extra revenue that gives you and the excitement of European football. And below that, there's the secondary Europe, the Europa League. So pretty much it's very rare for a team in the Premier League to go into the last three or four weeks of the season with nothing to play. You're talking about two or three teams in the middle who are safe from relegation and who can't get into Europe. That's all we're talking about, two or three teams there. So everyone's got something to play for all the way. And when I used to work in the, in the States and I would cover uh, some regularly losing franchises, um, and I, I used to cross my mind all the time. I was watching you know, the Dolphins in the NFL and thinking, you know what? It actually would do them good to get relegated for a year or two and then come back. Because when you go down, the strong clubs, they come back in two or three years anyway. But they come back with a fresh bunch of players. They've been able to get rid of the dead wood. The fans have the excitement of winning a second division championship to get back into the top flight. So there's a whole series of stories. And just, you know, to give people the big picture on it, really, my local club here is Burnley. When my father was uh, watching Burnley in the 1960s. They were one of the top teams in Europe. They were the champions of England in 1960. Small town team. It's a kind of a green bay, if you like. When I started following them in the 1980s was the start of an epic decline, and I watched them fall down to the fourth division, playing against like no-name teams uh, with crowds of like 1,500, 2,000 people. Heartbreaking for my father, who'd seen them be playing in the European Cup and champions of England. But then over my lifetime, they've come back. And in the last five years have been, you know, the underdog story of the Premier League. So you have such incredible wide-ranging narratives that go across generations here. And as opposed to an NFL season where you're starting to cheer for your team to lose so you get a better draft pick. Right, exactly. You know, and, 
you know, I mean, you do get that in American sports, that sort of you know, the comeback story. And you think about, I don't know, the Saints, for example, who, you know, where people were wearing the paper bags on their heads for so many years and then they go and win the Super Bowl. You do get some of that. But you haven't had the Saints go out of the NFL into obscurity and then having to fight their way back over a decade to get there. It's, it's a different thing. I totally get why it's... In the soccer world in America, I remember there used to be like very ideological arguments about this with some people thinking that American soccer should follow this. I don't necessarily agree with that because the whole business and culture and environment in the States, I'm not sure MLS would have even got to where it is now if it didn't have the franchise system. And if anything, you mentioned baseball earlier, that's the one where there are kind of the tiers where it might be easiest to move up and down. There is no place to be relegated out of the NFL. No, there's exactly. No, you know, I mean, maybe, no if, maybe if, you know, the USFL and the, uh, the other various projects that were tried had taken off, maybe you would have. I mean, I guess at one time they resolved that issue when, when the AFL and the NFL merged, you know, in the, in the 60s. That, that kind of resolved that. If you'd have had, you know, the AFL as the second division and, you, you know, but it was completely out of the question, wasn't it? So getting back to the events of last week, can you kind of paint the timeline here of, you said it was 48 hours. What took place from that announcement to ultimately if starting to fall apart and, and then we'll get to where it stands right now. Cause it sounds like it's still very much in limbo, but those 48 hours, what all happened? It's a little bit of a blur. So I'll, I'll do my best <laughs> to, uh, to recount it. Something, I will link some... to the story that you did write for Reuters, by the way, where you did talk about the 48 hour window. Yeah, and we had a timeline that we put out actually as well, which would be quite handy for people. But there's, um, yeah, so Sunday afternoon, last Sunday afternoon, stories start to emerge. The Times broke the story um, that the English clubs had signed up for it. Reports had come out in Italy earlier than that that something was going on. Um, condemnation started immediately. I mean, you had live broadcasts of games on Sky Sports here, which is our equivalent of, say, you know, ESPN or Fox. The commentators on the game were denouncing this. Gary Neville, a former England and Manchester United uh, player, went into like, you know, epic rant about it, denounced it in the strongest terms. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, issued a statement, very unusual, saying, if this story is confirmed, I mean, you don't often get the Prime Minister coming out and commenting on unconfirmed sports reports. Um, he came out, they knew it was coming, of course, and, uh, and the Times report was very credible, written by a good journalist, Martin Ziegler, who, who knows this stuff and broke a lot of stories around it. Um, and by, uh, by 11 o'clock at night, we were waiting and waiting for the official announcement, and, and it came in a PDF file. Um, so, you know, the, P, the, uh, the approach of it, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't the club owners coming out and holding a press conference. There weren't videos there weren't players or coaches or anyone backing it. This was, this was a press release that came out on a PDF file at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night. Not ideal, I would say, from a presentation point of view. Uh, and the next morning, it was hammered by everyone. All the media attacked it, everyone in the game. Um, it was clear that the club's most prominent public personalities, their coaches, um, hadn't been briefed on this at all. And you even had on Sunday afternoon, the Manchester United coach, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, asked what he thought about it and saying, I'm sorry, I just don't know anything about this. I mean, it was quite an incredible scene. And I think pretty disgraceful, actually, that the coaches of teams were put in that position on live TV on such a, 
you know, as such a hot, live, controversial issue, they were the ones who had to take the questions from, from TV and not the owners who had hatched this plan in the first place. So you had a full day of denunciations, of developments. You had uh, uh, then have activity in court in Madrid where the, the uh, Super League, as it was called, the Super League uh, company tried to get an injunction stopping UEFA, who, of course, had the most to lose in all of this because they were about to have their Champions League ripped to shreds and lose its top 12 assets, really. Um, they came out very strongly against it. The president of UEFA said they were going to ban all these clubs from all competitions, including their domestic competitions. So it was full-scale, all-out war on this issue. And then in the face of that, on Tuesday, the English clubs started one by one, domino effect, to pull out of the project. And by Wednesday morning, um, I was on a Zoom interview call with the chairman of Juventus, Andrea Agnelli, and asked him straight question, you know, you've got six teams left out of your breakaway 12. Is this still going to go ahead? How can it go ahead? And he said, let's be honest, it isn't going to happen. So that was, that was it. And since then, yeah, in the middle of that, you had the British government as well threatening legislation to um, actually, you know, pass laws to stop this happening. So it was quite an unprecedented, enormous story and uh, one that totally dominated not just sport, but politics and business news uh, last week. And part of the business news was there, there were some big-time backers, including a massive global bank that was right at the front of this as well. And have they faced backlash? They have. I mean, it's not often you hear JP Morgan issue a public apology for anything. Um, and they came out and said, we, we, we misjudged this one. We got this one wrong. We're sorry about it. So that tells you the strength of feeling and, and the, the level of the backlash about it. And I was watching some of the reaction in the States as well. And I noticed, um, you know, the soccer community in America, even amongst people who, going back to that argument about MLS and all that, even amongst people who understand why MLS is a, a single entity franchise structure, they like the fact that European football, European soccer is what it is. And I think, I think there, was a, there, there weren't many backers of this idea at all outside of the people who came up with it. We're recording this a little past 7 p.m. on Monday, April 26th, so about a week on from when all this had, had been going down. It's still not dead. And in fact, uh, I woke up to some news this morning where Real Madrid's president, Perez, uh, cites contracts saying, you know, this, this isn't as easy as just walking away. This might not be dead yet. What is the latest as of this moment, knowing that by the time you, our listener, is hearing it, it all could have changed? <laughs> Well, it's dead in the sense that the 12-team breakaway isn't happening. Um, and as well as the six English teams, Atletico Madrid pulled out as well. And, and, and you also had uh, Inter Milan from Italy pulling out as well. So there's a small group, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus really uh, left with this. But you're right. They signed up contracts, binding contracts with uh, rather expensive, depending on the numbers vary according to reports, but quite expensive uh, breakup clauses. Um, so it's not going to be simple for them to get out of it, um, but it's not going anywhere. So they will get out of it, I think, eventually. And it's going to be, it comes down to whether Real Madrid's president, Florentino Perez, who, who was the instigator and driver of this whole thing, whether he really wants to uh, get into a big legal battle with other big clubs. And the fact is Real Madrid are losing a lot of money. They've got debts approaching a billion euros. Um, They've fallen out with UEFA. They've upset the Spanish league. 
does he need a long-running legal case with other big clubs? I'd suggest not. I'd suggest that they will take a pause and look at how best they might protect their interests in the future, which is a, a, a difficult issue for them to address. But I'd be surprised if it becomes a big legal battle amongst the 12. For these clubs, are there dangers of there being some long-running, whether it's legal battles or just a hangover effect or disgruntled fans, players? What's yeah, the definitely. damage? Yeah, the, no, the damage is huge. I mean, I think their political positions inside uh, UEFA and inside European football, they were very strong. They influenced how many teams, the structure and the financial distribution model for UEFA, the big clubs had a huge sway over that because for many years they'd used the threat of a breakaway as leverage. Um, that leverage is gone now because no one's going to do a breakaway again. So they've, they've lost that. They've lost their positions on key committees. They've lost their influence in the European game. In the Premier League, the 14 teams who weren't involved in this, they said, right, that's it. We're not being dictated to by these guys anymore. They have had that power. Um, and there's talk of tightening up the rules so that they can't even think of doing anything like this again. But at UEFA level, there's, there's a real risk of sanctions against some of these clubs. I wouldn't be surprised. I think UEFA want to bring them back into the fold because they are valuable assets to them. The Champions League is a weaker product without Real Madrid and Juventus and Manchester United. So they'll want them back in, but I can't see how they can just, uh, you know, pretend this didn't happen. And you have, in the midst of all this, the Champions League taking place. And in the middle of the week, those games are happening while there's all this drama off the pitch. And some of these same teams are involved in those games, are they not? We've got the last four of the Champions League this week and three of the last four are the breakaway teams. The only one that isn't is Paris Saint-Germain. So you've got Chelsea who broke away versus Real Madrid who broke away. Paris Saint-Germain who didn't against Manchester City who did. So, yeah, extraordinary. There were, there were calls last week in the heat of it all for those teams to be banned from this year's competition. But, you know, UEFA's angry, but they're not going to blow their TV deals for this season. In terms of that hangover, it, we mentioned the fan outcry. And one of the teams, I mentioned them earlier, Arsenal, I've seen some pretty pointed calls from the fans telling the owner, you mentioned him earlier, Stan Cranky, get out. You know, and, yeah. and we don't want you involved anymore. Why is there such a visceral reaction to fans when, you know, he's done pretty well for that club. I mean, this year is a down year, but they've, they've been – not bad under his tenure. Why would they want him out as a result of this? Well, you know, they were a club who, who for many years were winning titles and were regulars in, in Europe and they aren't anymore. Uh, how much of that can be placed at the door of Kroenke? How much of the, uh, the bad decisions of their coaches and their recruitment team? Uh, I think it's a mix of all that. But I think one of the problems Kroenke has, and it's similar to how I found I was actually in St. Louis reporting on the day that they moved the Rams to LA and had to do that story, which was the same way we're talking about Americans being fascinated about all this. British audience was fascinated in how can a team move from St. Louis to LA and what the fans feel about it. So I spent that evening walking around sports bars in St. Louis talking to people. Um, so maybe I got a jaundiced view of Stan Kroenke from that experience because he wasn't the most popular man in, uh, in, in that city at that time, that's for sure. And I'm sure still isn't. Um, 
the American owners of these Premier League clubs uh, were always coming into a difficult situation because there is a, a suspicion of American owners when they come in. And one of the suspicions that I always thought was a little bit ignorant and cliched was, oh, they'll want to get rid of promotion and relegation and turn it into a franchise system. And most people were like, well, no, they understand American soccer is different. They bought this investment fully aware of what they're going into. But it turns out they did want to get rid of those things and, and create the, you know, that security that comes with automatically being in a league without that jeopardy of, of promotion and relegation. Um, so there's that factor. Um, the Glazers, who own um, uh, Manchester United, they were very involved in this. Uh, they, they, they have got a very hostile fan base who, who were against them from the start because of the way they did a leverage buyout of the club. And, and the debt that was placed on Manchester United as part of that process. Liverpool's American owners, the Fenway Sports Group, obviously the Red Sox owners as well, were very popular because, uh, you know, if in Liverpool you managed to win the first title for uh, 30 years or so, you're going to be popular. And they hired Jurgen Klopp. They brought in a golden era for Liverpool these last few years. But a lot of that goodwill has been lost now because of this. So... I can see the Fenway Sports Group uh, being able to uh, rebuild that trust, I think, if success comes back for Liverpool. The Glazers and Kroenke, it's a, it's a tougher one. So what's next in the Super League saga? Um, I think it is dead. I think we will see um, some of changes in the Champions League going away from the big club, maybe opening the door even further for smaller clubs to come in because the big clubs have lost that bargaining power and that, that threat over it. Um, but I think what happens now in world football, I think the super, project, the super League is dead, but Super Projects aren't dead. And I think, you know, it actually goes back to our old friends at FIFA now. Um, Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, who took over from Sepp Blatter after the corruption scandal, he wants to create a Super Project, which is the Club World Cup. He wants to replicate the Club World Cup. Uh, the World Cup, obviously, is for national teams. He wants to do the same for club teams and have the best of Europe playing against the best South Americans in, 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 a, in a tournament. At the moment, the plan is for that to be every, once every four years, like it is with the World Cup. But there are people in the game, I reported this yesterday, there are people who game who think he wants to make that an annual event, in which case it's not that far away from a Super League. You are a correspondent for Reuters covering football and other sports news. You've been with them for nearly two decades. Your background, though, you went to university, you studied government and political science. And on paper, you'd say, well, how'd you wind up covering sport? And yet, based on what you've had to cover in the past week, it seems like the perfect background for what you're now doing. How yeah. did you get into writing about sport, considering that university background? Um, well, yeah, how I got into it is, is, is accidental. It is the right background, just to address that point, actually. Um, in fact, I was talking to somebody who is a political consultant in the UK who was watching this story and saying, this is even more brutal than real politics because, <laughs> because you don't actually have voters. You don't actually have the public. So politicians will at least temper their ambition and their desires and, and everything else by the knowledge that they have to go to the voters every four years or so. These guys don't have to do that. It's just all about money and power. So it's brutal. It's hardcore politics. And, it, and it's fascinating to cover. And many of the same dynamics. So, yeah, 
how did I get into it? Um, after I finished university and, and uh, sort of did a few kind of casual jobs back home, um, I went out to Eastern Europe. I went to Budapest in Hungary um, and started freelancing out there. I was teaching English a little bit to pay the bills and I started freelancing, doing all kinds of journalism, uh, some political, uh, quite a lot of it was political actually. But I just stumbled into this niche when a Hungarian team qualified for the Champions League, uh, Ferenc Varos, and Reuters and other media had to cover this team and they didn't know anybody. No one was on the Hungarian football beat anywhere. Uh, and I was. So um, I ended up doing work for Reuters uh, covering that. I wrote a book about European football while I was sort of freelancing, which helped sort of get me to the attention of Reuters as well. And please and plug they, that book. What's the title? Oh, it's long out of print, unfortunately, <laughs> but it's uh, the Rough Guide. People might have heard of Rough Guide travel books, uh, a bit like Lonely Planet. Um, it was the Rough Guide to European Football. It was half travelogue, half European football history, and then half, well, that's three halves, isn't it? But um, <laughs> travel guide, practical stuff, where to go for a beer near the stadium, that, that was in there. That was what made it, actually, that stuff. But um, it was great fun. It did, it, it did quite well. Um, and uh, eventually I went to the World Cup in 1998 where I was, I'd become, my niche had become East European football, the former communist countries. And we're only talking there about, you know, seven or eight years after the end of communism and the Iron, Iron Wall coming down. So there were a lot of great stories to do there. Um, I got lucky at the 1998 World Cup. I turned up as uh, this 20-something freelance guy from Budapest who's from the north of England who's this guy, and I got given um, these European teams to cover. And Croatia, which had just come out of the Yugoslav Wars, the Balkan Wars, playing in their first ever World Cup, they got to the semi-final. It was a great story, and I'd been covering Croatia throughout the tournament, so I got, I got lucky, really. And, uh, and then after that, Reuters uh, moved me on to Italy. On to Italy, and then to Miami, and you're suddenly covering all kinds of different sports. And you sound like you've been a football fan all your life, but when you're suddenly covering uh, World Cup of skiing, or especially when you come to the U.S., and now you're covering MF NFL and MLB and all these other sports, how do you learn up to, to be able to be conversant in so many different sports? Well, you've never to be afraid of doing what somebody told me when I started covering, in Italy, I started covering alpine ski you know, the, the stuff we see in the Winter Olympics. And you're suddenly talking to the greatest skiers in the world and asking them about the mistakes they made on their run when you can't actually ski yourself, right? So you've not got to be afraid of asking dumb questions, basically. And uh, my American colleagues in the press box at NFL games and at NBA games uh, were really good at answering my dumb questions. Um, and I did, and I would say, this is, I always preface it, I said, this is probably a really stupid question, but like the quarterback just threw the ball out of the field without trying to make a pass. Is that actually allowed? And they would explain to me that, uh, no, not really, but they get away with it and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, what is a, what is a, what is a catch? You know, I had that in, a, I covered that famous uh, Packers-Cowboys uh, playoff game with, uh, I think it was Des Bryant's catch. And was it a legal catch or not? And I was like, yeah. we half-hour discussions about what a legal catch is. So 
you've got to ask questions. You've got to be, uh, but also you've got, you've got to be very humble about it and not try to get clever too quick. You know, I mean, my first couple of years covering the NFL, I didn't write much opinion stuff. You know, I, I was keeping it very straight, sticking with the facts, talking to people, learning, but it was brilliant. It was a great experience because, you know, I went out, we have a great, in Miami, obviously there's great high school football. I would go and watch high school games, not reporting them for Reuters, obviously, but just to watch it and learn it and talk to people. And um, I just have to immerse myself in it. Basketball was a lot easier because in Europe, you know, we're familiar with basketball. I played a bit when I was at school. Um, and, uh, and also the personalities sold the story, you know, in basketball. I was lucky that LeBron James signed for the Miami Heat while I was covering them. So you had that whole big three at, at, uh, at Miami that was just such an great story an easy story to write uh big strong personalities um but yeah you know nfl was really tough to cover at first linguistically you still we still have americans who would be reading my articles so i had to be really careful and you know i got picked up on a few things early on that were a little embarrassing where i used sort of soccer terminology to describe you know i think one that somebody sent an email into the company about was like I said somebody slotted home a field goal, which is like how you describe, uh, you know, a penalty kick or something. But um, and little expressions like that um, that you have to pick up. But yeah, you have to learn the rules. You know, I mean, somewhere downstairs there is, you know, American football for dummies. <laughs> you know, that did get well read in the first year or two. So, but it was great, and uh, you know, I, I really always will be grateful for the people in the NFL um, who I talked to. And in the locker rooms with the great access we get in comparison to Premier League soccer, where you're not going anywhere near a locker room. Um, but to walk up to players who'd, who've just come off the field and have an English guy come up to them and say, what happened on that fourth down? You know, um, they look, sometimes you get a strange look with my accent, but you always got an answer because these guys are so well trained media wise and they're just so used to it. Um, but it was fascinating. No, and I was covering tennis. I was covering golf. A big part of my job was in the Caribbean, um, where I was covering cricket and Usain Bolt, track and field, a lot of cricket, which is obviously um, not a big sport in the States, but it's big in a lot of the English-speaking world. So um, it was great. You were jumping from one thing to the next. You know, you'd do the Florida swing on golf, and then suddenly you, you, you're down in Mexico covering some CONCACAF soccer. It was, it was unbelievable. When you get assigned to a new sport, you're going in and you're doing that in the press box, but how much do you prepare before you get there? I mean, for football, you knew you were going to cover a lot of football matches, so you got the, the football for dummies guide. But in terms of some of these other sports, when suddenly, hey, Miami Open, go cover the tennis, how much time do you spend in the lead-up just kind of getting up to speed? Uh, not as much as you'd like because you're so busy doing what you were doing the week before, but you, you have to, you have to do your homework. I mean, you, you can't, and also, you know, it's, it's disrespectful for the people you're covering if you don't, frankly, you know, and, and the way tennis tournaments are organized, as you, as you know very well, is um, before the things even got going as a, as, a, as a big sport event, you're in the prelim rounds and stuff, Roger Federer and Serena Williams are walking into the media room on a Tuesday and, you're going in there to ask questions. And actually, there's not actually that many of you um, as there are an NFL press room. So there's a pretty good chance you're going to be asking a question. And if you don't know what Federer did at Indian well, Indiana Wells, um, 
you're going to you're going to look an idiot. So you know you got to do your homework. It's uh, do your homework and don't try to be too clever. You know, don't try to be the expert because you know covering multiple sports. And now I cover mainly football and mainly football business and politics and stuff. So I, I am in a niche niche role back in England now. But at that time, I was always the outsider. You know, you turn up a golf tournament. Everyone knew everything about everyone. And I'm the one who was like, you know, I managed to watch the final round on Sunday after I'd finished doing an NFL game of last week's tournament. And, you know, I've read up and I try and keep up reading the stuff on the wires and, and, and the websites. But, um, but I don't know as much as uh, Doug Ferguson of AP who sat there and who goes to every event and stuff. So you've got to be humble, realistic, honest, and focus on, what for me was a slight advantage, which is I was writing for an international audience, so I didn't need to be that inside baseball, you know? I could, I could paint the big picture a little bit more, which required a little bit less detailed knowledge, which, which was a good thing sometimes, yeah. And, and you got to be in places for a while. You were in Italy for eight years, then in the States for almost seven years. So you probably got to cover some of the same events year over year. By doing so, are you having that tennis file and then a golf file, and then the cricket file. Are you keeping track so that you can kind of refer back to what you did learn a year ago as you come back into these sports for a small period of time? Yeah, you do. And, and you know, you develop an interest in the personalities, which, is, which really helps, you know. I mean, I remember one year at the Miami tennis. See, I would cover, for tennis, I would cover Miami. I would, a few times I would cover Cincinnati. A couple of times I would go to Flushing Meadows, um, Delray Beach, I, I did a few times as well, but mainly it was Miami was the one I did every year. And so I would tend to have a distorted view of tennis based on how people had done at Miami. So um, Azarenka had a, a big win at Miami early in her career. It might have been her first uh, Masters level uh, victory, actually. So I, I had, you know, Azarenka's... And by the time you come around a year later, they might have hit a spell of bad form and they're not the story anymore. So a lot of what you learn might not be relevant, but it, it piques your interest in it. I was always fascinated um, uh, with Simona Halep, who also did very well early in her career in Miami. And I interviewed her quite a few times and I've got some connections in Romania as well. Uh, my wife's family are from there. So I would follow Simona Halep's career and week to week I would check, you know, how she was doing and so on. And so that, that interest comes from covering one tournament, but it keeps you, keeps you alert to what's happening in the sport all year round while you might be, you know, on Super Bowl duty in February and you're consumed with the NFL, but you're still going to be, you know, you've got your Google alert searches popping up with, with, with the names of certain athletes or players that you're interested in. And um, yeah, that's, that's the way you keep on top of it. But it, it is difficult when you're covering... I mean, foreign correspondent for sport is a pretty small world. I mean, there's foreign correspondents and there's sports correspondents. There's not many are, are doing both. And they're usually working at agencies. You know, New York Times has had people um, um, in Paris and places for, for a while, uh, but not many newspapers have that. Not many magazines have that. It's, it's a wire service thing, mainly. Um, so you find people from the AP, Reuters, and, and Argent France Press, AFP, who do who do this, and it's a pretty unique skill set. You've got to be able to um, almost be parachuted into situations and get up to speed really, really fast. And it means you don't have that depth of knowledge and expertise, but you know you're trying to get a story as well. You know, and uh, 
I remember my first editor at Reuters, Paul Radford, who was you know a long-standing editor at Reuters, and he said, "It's not really that complicated what we do, but not many people can do it." And I think I think that's that's true. You know, not many people have to do it, but um, it, it is its own skill set. It, can you expand on that? What makes it unique? And first of all, you mentioned the international audience. Who is using the Reuters content? Obviously, in the U.S., we see a lot of the Associated Press. So where does that Reuters content go? But also just the approach of being a wire service versus writing for that Miami Herald or a paper there in Manchester where you're catering to that localized audience. So you've got to write articles uh, and this is what makes it tricky when you're covering American sports because with cricket, I pretty much know if I'm writing a cricket report, the only newspapers in the world that are going to use it are from the cricket-playing countries. So it'll appear in Australia and India and South Africa. So I can assume that knowledge from that readership most of the time. Um, with soccer, it can go anywhere. Uh, you just got to be careful with your references. So the kind of colorful languages, you know, you, you read a report in, in one of the English newspapers and it'll compare... Uh, a player to a popular TV personality or something like that, you know? I can't do that because the readers in other countries won't know that TV personality. They're not watching British TV. So you can't make many cultural references. You can't make many historical references. You've got to be culturally sensitive in the same way you would be in the business world of the fact that you're writing for people of different religions and different backgrounds and so on. So it does result in copy, which is a lot more straight, straight down the line, not so colorful, um, and doesn't assume knowledge. So, you know, sometimes people in England, will friends will read my reports, and it will say something like, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, um, the top Portuguese player, right? I need to explain that because mm, somebody in Texas might not know that. Um, or somebody in, uh, in, uh, in other countries might not know something about, about somebody in other sports. So you, you can't assume the knowledge. So it makes the articles read a little bit uh, formal and basic in some ways. Try not to do that, but it does limit what you can do. Um, so you're kind of writing for anyone and no one at the same time, if you know what I mean. You don't have a traditional, a typical reader. If you're writing for the Miami Herald, you know, primarily you're writing for people who are into the Dolphins, yeah? The Dolphins fans, most of them. Uh, and so you've got that assumed knowledge that goes with being a Dolphins fan. Every time I wrote about the Dolphins, I had to mention Dan Marino. I had to mention, you know, what went on with Don Schuler in the 70s and so on for the international audience just to jog them. Because, you know, you mentioned the Dolphins. You need to jog people's memory of what you're talking about. So it, it, is, it is very different in that sense. And Reuters content is typically picked up more internationally than here in the U.S. market. What are the key markets for Reuters? Well, we are in the U.S. market. And for a while, we, were, we had a deal with um, the Tribune Media Group. And we're appearing in a lot of newspapers, which was um, a real challenge with the NFL coverage. Because suddenly, you know, my reports that would be used maybe in the Guardian's American sports section suddenly were being read by editors of the Chicago Tribune. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you've got to be aware of that. Um, so we had to adjust it a little bit when that period. But, no, there are websites. You know, ESPN uses our stuff um, on some of its websites. Um, 
and uh, pretty much everywhere around the world. Big markets for us traditionally um, aren't necessarily the big markets for us now. Asia is a huge market for us, and there's a lot of English language media there, but our stuff gets translated as well. So, you know, last week I was looking, I was trying to find an earlier version of one of my stories to update it, and I found a Japanese translation of it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge operation. It's a massive, massive news agency, um, and, and it's everywhere in the world. You know, we've got bureaus in, in all these places, uh, everywhere in the world, pretty much. Yet, as you said, that foreign sports correspondent is a very small population. When you were in the U.S., how many others Reuters sports correspondents were there based in this country? Um, at that time, we had uh, a guy who did a lot of golf called Mark Lampart Stokes, who was in uh, Los Angeles. Um, now lives pretty close to you, actually. He's no longer Indeed. no longer with Reuters. Um, and... Um, we had uh, a reporter in New York, and we had two guys in Canada. And then we had a stringer network as well. So uh, we had a couple of, like, you know, very active uh, stringers, such as uh, Gene Cherry, who covers track and field, a veteran track and field reporter who was really on top of that. He wasn't, you know, one of the Reuters staff, but whenever there was a track and field story or, or often other stories, he would, he would jump in and help us out as well. So it was a small team really compared when you come on, when you come up to AP and they have like two or three people in every city covering sport. And it's like, we had three or four in the whole country. So yeah, we didn't have any uh, illusions about trying to uh, beat AP on the beat or anything like that, you know, and which was nice in a way, because on a personal level, you know, you go and cover, I was covering the Miami heat and, uh, became good friends with Tim Reynolds, who covers, who covers the heat for uh, the Associated Press. And in some cases, the AP and Reuters in, in, in Europe or other countries, they might be head-to-head -head competitors. With Tim, he knew he didn't have to worry about Reuters, and I wasn't trying to, trying to you know, outdo Tim either. So we, we, you know, that allowed for a nice personal relationship as well. He was very helpful, actually, with me on, on some of the technical stuff on basketball. Um, as, as was most of the, were most of the colleagues. But yeah, small team, small team we were then. And you've come back now, you're in Manchester and you are the football correspondent for Reuters. So how much does that change just what you do because you are now able to really focus on pretty much a singular sport? You still cover some other things, but there's a lot more attention down one path, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I still get to like, the British Open golf and I've been to Wimbledon and, 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 and I'll be going to the Olympics. And uh, so there's still some of that stuff there. Um, but day to day, it's like focused on football and very much focused on what gets called the sports news beat. So the kind of things like Super League, like FIFA decisions and business of sport and that kind of stuff, uh, which I really, really enjoy. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's nice because, you know, managed to get a few scoops on the story last week um, would have been very different, very difficult to get scoops and breaks if I was covering a scandal story in the NFL, for example. You know, um, tried. You know, we had one or two where we were pretty close. Uh, but when you're up against the, you know, the NFL, the media machine that covers the NFL in the States, you know, I was realistic about my chances of breaking news in that environment. You know, I don't think... Uh, you know, the guys on the NFL network were sweating too much about whether I was going to get the latest trade deals or whatever, or, 
and the same with with the NBA. But uh, over here, yeah, I mean the Premier League stuff. You know, the media over here that covers Premier League, the kind of you know trade stories, the injury news, that day to day beat stuff. That's tough. But in that sports news niche, we are able to you know get ahead and, and do stuff. And I really like that because I do have you know I do have that competitive side of me in journalism that that wasn't able to really come out in the States because the competition was so obviously loaded against us uh, and, and we had a different job to do. But over here, it's nice to break stories in Britain for the British market as well. I really enjoy doing that. As with most in the media, it's expanded. You're not just writing that copy anymore. Uh, and in fact, you refer to yourself as being involved with photos as well as video on multimedia packages. How much have you had to learn about these other forms of media beyond just writing as that has exploded as part of the industry? Yeah, well, the breaking news part of news agency stuff means that, you know, a couple of times, you know, there was a case, for example, um, when Liverpool, uh, when the visiting team's um, bus arriving for a Champions League game was attacked by fans throwing bottles at it. And you get your mobile phone out and you film that and you've got the footage and you send it through and it goes out to the world and that's the TV footage. Um, it's quite, it, compared to what that was, what it was like working for Reuters when I joined them in the mid 90s, um, the idea that I would be, you know, providing content for television networks from my phone is pretty mind blowing, but everyone's doing that. It's nothing amazing about doing that, but that, that's part of the job. Um, one of the things that's happened with the pandemic is that, you know, doing interviews on Zoom. Um, so a story got last week when um, the Juventus chairman sort of raised the white flag on the whole Super League battle. That was done on Zoom. So we had the video that went out and got massive use uh, worldwide from Reuters TV clients because Reuters TV is a big, big part of the of the operation. Um, so that's part of it. Yeah, Um Photos I don't do. I mean, I would do if something happened and, you know, there was no photographer there, yes, but we don't plan on doing that. You know, if, if you have to be an opportunist and something happens, you get a picture of it, sure. And I have had photographs go on the Reuters photo wire where I've been somewhere and something unexpected has happened. But we have a great team of sports photographers. I mean, really amazing. The stuff they do is like, you know, award-winning stuff, um, literally. And so... Uh, but work closely with them, you know, come up with ideas with them. Um, we've done a lot. We've done a lot of what we call explainer videos where I go out and, you know, do a to camera pieces and so on. And then away from that, we get broadcasters call us up and ask us to do, to do uh, podcasts or to do, uh, you know, TV two ways, uh, which I like doing. I've done quite a lot of those. I've kept one of my freelance gigs from, from, from when I was in the States. I actually do, do a regular pundit slot on um, Sportsmax, which is the Caribbean network, uh, pan-Caribbean network, where I, a couple of times a week I go on their show. It's late, late night here. Um, it's their main talk show, and I go on and talk about Champions League or, or, or Premier League, and it's great fun. I've been doing that for a number of years. So, yeah, it's not just writing. You did take a pause from being on the journalist side and went and you were the senior manager of public affairs at CONCACAF. First of all, what is CONCACAF? And then what was your role in managing that public affairs situation for them? 
Um, so CONCACAF is um, the UEFA. We've talked about UEFA being the governing body for, for soccer in Europe. CONCACAF is the governing body for all the countries in North America and the Caribbean. It's 30-something countries. So the US is in there, Mexico, Canada, but also the Central American countries and all the island nations in the Caribbean. Um, so it's got a lot of countries to cover. Uh, and uh, the Gold Cup that takes place in, in summers uh, every couple of years in the States, that's run by CONCACAF. The World Cup qualifiers are handled by CONCACAF as well. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a big deal. A troubled organization, I should say. You know, I mean, there were corruption scandals at, at CONCACAF before I went there. I actually covered the corruption scandals at CONCACAF when Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer... Uh, characters who, if anyone's vaguely followed some of the FIFA corruption stories, would know those names. Uh, they were out. A new regime came in, promising reforms, promising you know to sweep clean the corruption out of the organisation. Um, they offered me a role um, helping them do that and helping letting people know they were doing that. Um, and how to put this? I, I left after six months. So maybe that explains it uh, pretty well. And the guys who hired me, one of them's, I think, still under house arrest after five years. Uh, the FBI raided their offices and there was a lot of corruption went on there. And uh, yeah, maybe I made a mistake going there to work for them. Uh, probably I did. Uh, but I certainly didn't make a mistake by getting out very quickly. To change gears from the reporting and the journalist side to that, public relations side and back how much did that one skill set help you going to the other side and now in coming back well it's a very different world isn't it it is a different world i know a lot of journalists uh, used to make that crossover i think probably less and less now do you see journalists going into like you know top public facing pr roles um because the skill set is very different the pace of it is different you know your instincts as a, as, a, as a journalist is to get the news out as fast as possible. That's not always the smartest thing to do when you've got something to say in the PR world. Take a breath, think about it, work out your strategy, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. I found it really interesting. I was actually quite sad that it worked out the way it did because it was a great gig. It could have been a great gig. Um, and I was really interested to have a second career in that field. Um, and... It didn't, it didn't work out, but there, I could see what some of the challenges would have been uh, if I'd have been involved in like really high-profile PR work. Um, and it's a different pace, above all. It's a slower pace. It is a slower pace, and it's more thoughtful and more strategic. And you have to know your stuff. You have to do your homework the same way. You have to be on top of your beat, as it were. Uh, but you have to have a calmer head than a journalist who can just go diving into a story like last week's and just start filing, filing, getting stuff out. It's a different mentality. And I like to think that I would have been able to make that transition, but six months, you know, six months wasn't time to find out really. You've covered sport around the world. What are some of the key differences in the regions as far as how they handle journalism and sport coverage? Yeah, that, there, there are some huge differences. So I think if you ask any uh, British sports journalist who's had anything to do with American sports, they would say that the access 
in American sports is on another level, far better. Um, the uh, PR people in American sports um, are much more proactive at dealing with the media, are much more helpful for their own reasons, obviously. Um, you know, it's not just because they're nice guys, although many of them are. It's, 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 it's about, you know, looking after the media and making sure you're getting your message across and so on. You get a wall of silence with a lot of Premier League clubs a lot of the time. Um, even when they're about to do something radical like launch a, a brand new <laughs> global sports product, they still didn't tell us anything about it, um, which is, is quite astonishing. I think that might actually lead to some change on that front, actually. I think that just goes to show that, you know, if you are calling yourself a global brand, you do actually have to behave like one. But, um, so, you know, the access, the access is a fascinating one because the fact that I could walk into a locker room at the Miami Heat and be standing next to LeBron James with a towel around his waist after he's just come out of the shower and ask him whatever questions I wanted blows the mind of British sports journalists who can't even talk to players after games often. You know, you might get something from the mix zone, but they'll just walk past you with their headphones on if they don't want to talk to you. So, um, but on the other hand, some of that access, you know, there's so much access that almost the value of it sometimes goes down, you know? So if you can get an interview as a newspaper journalist in Britain, um, with Harry Kane, the captain of the England national team and the Tottenham centre-forward. If you get an interview with Harry Kane, that's going to be very widely read, very widely shared because it's so rare. But Tom Brady is talking to the media every other day in the locker room at uh, his team. So it, it changes the dynamics of it, you know. So it's very, in some ways, it makes, it makes it harder to get that dramatic sort of exclusive or really high-profile interview because they are so available. And it's like, I, I was always asking for a one-on-one -on -one with Tom Brady for like seven years. And the answer I got was, hey, just come down to after practice. You can talk to him. Well, yeah, you can with like, you know, 15 cameras and like, you know, 35 other beat reporters there. So it's not always quite as amazing as, as, as people think. But I would definitely take the American version over what exists here and, and in Europe. It wasn't always like this over here either. You know, when I started out in... In Italy and, and, and before that, when I was in Eastern Europe, I got great access to people. You know, you could talk to coaches, players. I used to have coffee with like top Italian players in the town that I lived in because they happened to be neighbors and they weren't scared of me. That wouldn't happen now. Um, and that obviously wouldn't, you know, like, it's, but, you know, you go back to the 90s, you hear some of the stories from the real veterans who, who worked in the 60s and 70s and they were going out for beer with players and coaches and they, they were getting stories by being in the pub with people. That, that's, that's ancient history now, unfortunately. A couple of rapid-fire questions for you. What are your favorite sports to cover? I do enjoy football. I mean, uh, and, you know, played it as a kid, not to any great level, um, followed it as a fan. So I do love covering that. Um, I, um, I also love cricket a lot. I played cricket to a better level. I was almost in the could have been a contender category when I was like 16, 17, promising youngster, let's say. Um, and I love the sport. And it's, you know, let's not waste any time trying to explain it to, you know, an American audience because it's one, it's one of those things. It's just not going to happen, is it? 
But I, I, in this, it, one thing it does share with baseball, one of the things it shares with baseball, is that kind of romance of like, you know, the first sound of uh, bat on ball in spring marks the start of summer. You go there and watch games. You know, I was at a cricket match, just a local club match yesterday with, with an old friend of my late father's. And you do, you sit there and have a beer for like two hours and the backdrop is a cricket match. And I think baseball's a little bit like that, isn't it? You know, so I love cricket. And then to cover as an event, as an event, um, the Masters is hard to beat as an event. I mean, I do like covering golf, even though it's a hard gig, it's a week-long golf tournament. But the Masters is one that, um, yeah, yeah, that's a unique event. Who are a couple of the players and or coaches that are just reliably good to talk to, both in terms of being quotable, but also in terms of being accessible and insightful? Yeah, I would say Carlo Ancelotti, who's the the coach of uh, Everton now, who's coached pretty much half the top teams in Europe, really. I mean, I covered him when I was in Milan and I was covering AC Milan when they when they were the, the top team in Europe, really, at that time. Even though they lost to Liverpool in the Champions League final, they won it a year or two afterwards. And he was very good with me then, even when I was asking him questions in, with my weird English accent speaking Italian. Uh, not the most fluent Italian necessarily to his ears anyway. Um, and then he pops on one of those tours. He's coach of Bayern Munich like years later. He pops up on one of those American tours they do in the European preseason. And, and I go up to New York and uh, sit in a W hotel and have lunch with him. And he, we talk about the good old days, but he also talks about Bayern Munich. And then here he is at Everton and like it's the pandemic and we're on a Zoom and he's answering questions. He doesn't give you the most amazing quotes, but he's such a nice guy, very thoughtful, uh, very intelligent. So I always enjoy listening to uh, or talking to Carlo Ancelotti, yeah. Uh, players as well. Um, you know, that's a tough one. That's a tough one with players because it's, it's difficult to... Uh, to get good access for them. But actually, you know, just to mention, Tom Heaton was a goalkeeper at Burnley, my local team here, uh, who'd been at Manchester United, was in the England setup, And if you were at the training ground, he would have that kind of American attitude that if you asked him a question, he'd try and give you something useful to give you a nice story that was positive for everybody. You know, he wasn't like, whoa, whoa, I don't talk to media. You know, he, he, he was a good guy. So I'll mention Tom Heaton. I close every episode with half dozen questions as a football guy you'll appreciate that i call it the set pieces uh and the first one is what are podcasts or newsletters that you are using to stay informed and keep learning um podcasts that i really learn a lot from if i focus on the learning side of it is uh it's what a business sports business podcast called unofficial partner mm -hmm. um, that's done in the uk um, and it covers everything from the TV rights market. I find it incredibly useful. Uh, and uh, as I told the presenter of it, when I had a chat with him recently, I steal a lot from it, basically, because, <laughs> you know, if I'm, I'm, I'm writing a story about the TV rights market for soccer, he interviews the people who know about it. And so I know who to call up, you know, so why not? Um, and it is, it is worth a listen. It's, it's very interesting. I actually, I think Americans would enjoy it as well, because... Uh, it crosses over into a lot of the kind of future thinking stuff. You know, where are we going with content? That kind of topic. Where, 
What should sport teams be doing with content? What should media be doing with content? So it's a lot of things that I think PR professionals in the States would enjoy. So I, I'd definitely recommend that to people. Who are your most valuable files on social media? The posts you do not want to miss. Um, I would say the most valuable follow for me in my work is Tariq Panja of the New York Times. Um, he covers um, the sport news beat, so, but particularly football. He writes a lot about football business, about FIFA, UEFA, the same sort of stuff. We're in the same, same ballpark beat, really. Uh, but he's very, very good. Um, really on top of his subject, great reporter. But the nice thing is on Twitter, he shares quite a lot of stuff that doesn't go in his articles. He'll, he'll, he'll chat about the background to stories. He'll offer some perspective. Um, so he's, he's essential. I would imagine anyone who's interested in European uh, soccer knows his colleague Rory Smith as well uh, from the New York Times, who's based in England as well. So, you know, it's really interesting that New York Times hired Tariq and Rory uh, two guys based in Britain. I think it just shows, you know, how much things have changed actually in the media that, you know, an institution like the New York Times has two British guys working for them writing about soccer. That would have been pretty unthinkable 20 years ago, 10 years ago, probably. What are a couple of books you would recommend to others? If somebody's interested in like British football writing, if we stay on that topic for a start, I would say, I would recommend a book that my father gave to me when I it was obvious to him that I wanted to be a football journalist. So it's called, uh, it's a book, it's an anthology of Hugh McIlvenny's writing. Hugh McIlvenny was a Scottish journalist, uh, passed away last year, unfortunately. Um, an absolute legend of, of British football writing. You know, one of, one of if not the all-time greats of it. Wonderful turn of phrase. He was from the era where you would go and drink a whiskey with the coach after the game and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but wrote beautifully well about the history of the game. His book, McIlvenny on Football, an anthology of his work, if somebody's curious about the culture of and the history of uh, soccer in Britain, um, that book will give you a real flavour, real flavour. And he's just such a great writer. He was such a great writer as well. And then away from sport... We talked about a little bit about politics and the fact that I, I studied politics at, at Newcastle University. Um, so I do read, actually, most of what I read away from work is, is political biography and so on or, or analysis stuff. There's a great book um, called The Road to Somewhere by uh, a British uh, writer, academic called David Goodhart. Um, and it's about topic that a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about, the polarization in our societies, um, particularly the differences between people who live in the big cities um, and people who live outside of them. And that's something that's obviously been a big issue in American politics. And it's been a big issue in, in Europe as well and in Britain. And he doesn't the reason I feel confident recommending it because in Reuters we don't express our political views at all. We have to be very straight down the line and neutral. But the reason why I recommend that book is it doesn't take a stance on it. He's not raging against one side or the other, which an awful lot of things that are written about polarization actually add to polarization. <laughs> he, he looks at it and says, why do we have these different worldviews? And I find it fascinating because as hopefully I've explained in this podcast, um, he groups it into two characters. He says, people who 
could be from anywhere, who've traveled the world, who are or in the States, travel, have been geographically mobile. They've moved from LA to New York, and then they've been in Chicago, and then they go down to Miami. Um, they have that view that's a very cosmopolitan, that looks at the world, they travel the world, they maybe speak another language and so on. And then people who he calls, he calls them the anywheres, and then he talks about the somewheres, people who are much more belonging to, have a sense of belonging to a place or a community. Um, sometimes gets disparaged, that kind of thing has been a small town mentality, but he also manages to say that actually having a sense of belonging and a, uh, to a community is what holds things together as well. So you need to find, he argues, some way to bring that those two worldviews together so that people who are anywheres can understand somewheres, which often doesn't happen, and vice versa. So I find it, as somebody who's been like a global citizen traveling around the world doing all this kind of stuff, and then went back to my hometown, I find it fascinating. I, I, I feel like I've lived a little bit in both camps. So that's a long way of saying that's, that's, I think, one of the best political books to read. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? You know, you mentioned these ones in advance, and I, I really struggled <laughs> with this one. Um, I can't think of a, a really a, a interesting thing to say there other than, I don't know, does being fit and healthy count as a cheat code? Well, or what do you do to stay fit and healthy? Right. I mean... A lot of I was I was I was a journalist who wasn't very fit and healthy. Um, uh, you probably saw me smoking cigarettes around the corner in the little smoking zones at tennis tournaments and stuff. And uh, the food we used to get covering the NFL didn't help with the dieting. Um, but we've talked about how fast-paced the media is and how intense it is, and the pressure and the beats and all this kind of stuff. And when you hit your fifties. If you want to keep up on that, at a certain point, you realize, actually, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea to try and get in shape and, and have a good diet and, and, and be healthy and stuff. So, um, yeah, running. I've, I've really got into running. Um, and I, uh, I've started running, you know, regular 5Ks and 10K runs and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's it, really. There's nothing particularly unique about it. I try and get an early morning run in if I can, and I find that that does help my work. Uh, it's not a particularly unique uh, insight. Lots of people do that, but, um, you know, it certainly beats um, a Marlboro Light and a third cup of coffee. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Oh, wow. I, I'm in danger of going into cricket territory again there. I mean, it's very right. quickly... Very quickly on cricket, their cricket test matches last five days. There was an epic test match in 1981 where uh, the game was virtually over on the third day. England were playing Australia, which is the biggest rivalry in international cricket. And on the fourth day, England started to mount this unlikely recovery, but it was still very unlikely. And on the fifth day, it could have been over within an hour or so, um, my dad said to me as an 11-year-old, let's just go and see what happens. Probably, you know, the game's over, but let's just go. The it might be one of those days when a miracle happens. And my dad had a really good instinct for sport because we turned up and it is considered one of the most amazing days of cricket history ever. A tiny, tiny crowd. They offered it for like, you could get in for like a pound or two, you know, because the, the game was supposed to be finished. 
uh, and it happened and I was there as an 11 year old and uh, and we'll never forget it actually as a journalist met one of the heroes of that game in the Caribbean on a cricket tour and I was having a beer and I couldn't resist saying hey you know I was at that game when you you know the 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 Bolton test uh, the 1981 Headingley test um, I said I was there as an 11 year old and he's like yeah 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 I know there was 2,000 people there and like you know, I think I've met half a million who say they were there, you know, but it, it's one of those things. It's one of those things, but I really was there. So that was one of the best ones. Then seeing, seeing Burnley, my local team, finally get after the, out of the fourth division to return to our earlier topic after uh, many, many years in the bottom division to be there the night that they got out um, in a little stadium in York, tiny little ground there. Uh, that was a really memorable one as well. My final question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Um, very close to me here in, in, a, in a wardrobe next to a boiler in, in several bags. There is a project. There is a project that has yet to be finished that is waiting for uh, lockdown would have been the perfect time to do it, really, <laughs> which is to get them framed up, the best ones. Uh, but I keep all of them, way too many. And my wife is always like, um, does this one count as a memory? Are you really going to remember this one? And I'm like, yeah, 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 don't throw it away. I can't get rid of them. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm very, very similar for me. Have all of them and cherish all of them equally. Although there are some that are, you know, play favorites for a few of them. But Simon, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for walking us through a, a crazy 48 hours last week and appreciate you coming on so quickly to talk us through that, but also through uh, your whole career and everything that you've been able to do and cover. So thanks so much. Thanks very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it, Peter. Good to chat again. There are a ton of links with additional information, including many of Simon's own stories on the Super League in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. So be sure to check that out. While you're there, sign up to join our mailing list so we can slide in your inbox when we have a new episode to share. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment, leave a rating and review wherever you are listening and give us a follow on social media. We're out there on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Many thanks to Simon for his insight and expertise on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Also would be remiss if I didn't thank Mike Miche for his continued editing of Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production. <laughs>